one, one last thing before you sit down. This isn't even what I'm preaching on this morning. I love that word, Hosanna. It's a word that we especially emphasize on Palm Sunday because it's a word that shows up in the passage that we're about to read. But it's a Jewish word, and it's, I love it because it's a, it's a word of praise. It's a word of offering praise to God. But here's what it really means. It means, Lord, save us. Oh, Lord, help us. Now, this is what's so deep about that. Listen, you know when you most praise him, when you most worship him, is when you come to him and you say, I need you. I need you. Help. I need you to save me. I need you to rescue me. It's in our dependence on him that he is most glorified. Amen? Is there an amen to that? It's in our dependence on him that he is most glorified. So Lord, we tell you this morning as we approach your word, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. We worship you and we also declare our dependence on you this morning. Lord, we need you. Every hour we need you. We need you now, Lord. As we approach the word, we need your Holy Spirit to open up our eyes and our ears to what you want to say to us today, to how you want to impact us today. We need you, Lord. We need you. And Lord, as we declare our dependence on you, as you hear a simple help rise up out of our soul to you, help, Lord, help, save us. You are glorified. Oh, Lord, you can do the best stuff. You can do the most stuff when we're just willing to admit our poverty when we're just willing to admit our need for you, when we're just willing to admit that we don't have it all together. So Lord, we stand in your presence this morning and we say we don't have it all together. We lay off the religious masks. We lay off pretending like we can hold it together. And Lord, in your presence, we just say to you, we need you. Help, Lord. Help, Lord. We need you. And be glorified in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One more time, let's exalt the name of Jesus. We praise you. You can be seated. Amen. Well, church, it is wonderful to see you. So many of you were praying for me and Steve as uh, we were traveling. I still have a little bit of jet lag, but we're catching up on our sleep. Um, And we just want to thank you for supporting us. In the last two weeks, we were in Nepal and then Sri Lanka, and uh, it's just one of those trips, I'm still finding words for it as I come back, Um, but it's one of those trips you just know on the other side of it that this is a life-changing thing. Um, There's just no way you're ever going to go back to being the same after that. And we were able to go because you went with us in your giving and praying, and we are just so moved by the way that you supported us. Um, So many of you were praying specifically while we were there, and I could just recount to you story after story after story where we got a text message or an email, and it was just so on point to where we were in ministry. Um, Nepal was an interesting place to be because um, it's one of the few countries that was not colonized by a European power as a a fierce, proud history because they uh, held off colonization. Um, and what's interesting about that is it was not until really a few decades ago that there was even one known believer uh, among the Nepalese people, and now um, what's there is an indigenous-led 
quickly growing and multiplying church, uh, largely being led by young leaders. And it is phenomenal uh, to see what God is doing through them. And they were so hungry for the teaching uh, that we were bringing and so grateful for it. Uh, Sri Lanka was different because the church is more established there. And the pastors that came in, uh, we worked with a small group of pastors there, about 25 pastors that served probably about 80 congregations uh, among these 25 pastors. And they had been in ministry a long time, 25, 30, 35, sometimes approaching 40 years, some of these pastors. And uh, we take so many things for granted for minis- in ministry here in the United States. And one of those things is that we have extensive support networks uh, for those of us who are in ministry. These pastors don't have that, and quite frankly, they're facing more difficult hardships than I probably ever will in ministry as a pastor. And so this group of pastors came in uh, just tired and honestly with a little bit of a bad attitude about what they thought was going to be just another seminar. And, um, and they came in weary and with lots of people they needed to forgive. And I'll tell you what, that first day, uh, we spent three distinct, long, protracted periods of time on that first day in repentance with these pastors. And some of you had actually given us words that that was going to be what happened, and that is what happened. And it was amazing to see uh, the kingdom do its demolition work, you know? The kingdom loves to build up, but the kingdom has to demolish first. And we shouldn't be afraid of that, you know? And it was amazing to see these pastors just confess together, you know, people who had hurt them, uh, prayerlessness, lust, um, just, uh, we were on our faces. There were some, like, really sweet times where um, just, we were just lingering in God's presence. And it was like you could tell where Jesus was in the room as he was just touching people and um, opening up their wounds. And uh, they left saying that, Uh, one pastor said this, they left saying that they expected just another seminar, and instead what they got was an encounter with Christ. And they said lots of people come from the West, and and they, you know, try to, uh, you know, teach us something, or, and they said, you guys just got on your face with us in repentance, and that's what we needed, you know, the most. And um, so it was just such an honor to, to be with them in that way. So anyway, thank you for being with us, church, and your giving and praying. And uh, you can be sure all that we experience will make its way into my sermons. As a matter of fact, um, as a matter of fact, I have a story at the end of today that I'll share. So you'll be hearing more about that as well. Well, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21 this morning, verse 1. Uh, You can get there in your Bibles or your phone, or it will be on the screen behind me if you want to follow along there. But this is kind of the classic uh, passage in the Gospel of Matthew, talking about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. So all over the world today, um, Christians are celebrating Palm Sunday. We remember this Sunday that Jesus entered Jerusalem. And, of course, this is just days before his arrest and trial and execution. And um, a lot of the gospel stories in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at the beginning of the New Testament are given to describing what happened in this last week before Jesus was crucified. And we've been looking at some of those passages even in the most recent last few weeks. But we're going to back up to Matthew 21 and look at Jesus' entry into the holy city Jerusalem. So I'd ask you to stand to your feet just in honor of God's word, and let's read this together. 
It says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. You can take your seats. Now, for some of you, this may be the first time you're hearing this story, or for others of you, this may be really familiar. But this passage is literally dripping with symbolism and prophecy um, in so many ways, more than we're going to get to cover this morning. But in so many of the details of this passage, it's dripping with symbolism and prophecy, but all of it is pointing to one primary message out of this passage. And it's this undeniable fact that Jesus is the Messiah, a word which means the anointed one, that God chose him. Why was Jesus chosen to save his people from their sin. He is the promised one sent from God to save his people from their sin. And this means, according to the Old Testament prophets, that Jesus is king. So there's so much about how this plays out, about the details of the way this plays out, Jesus' entrance into the city that points to this message. Jesus is the one. It's like God, the Father, is putting a huge exclamation point on his son, on Jesus, as he rides into Jerusalem and is saying, this is it. This is the one. This is the one the prophets have been talking about for hundreds of years. The one that has been promised. He is coming now. The Father puts a big exclamation point on it. But what I want to do this morning is point to a pattern that Jesus is going to experience this week uh, that we celebrate as Holy Week, this week leading up to uh, his crucifixion. And it's a pattern that plays out in Jesus' life, but it's also a pattern that plays out in the lives of many faithful people in the Old and New Testaments who followed God. And this pattern has to do with the promises of God, and I hope this morning it will encourage you as we look at the way that the purposes of God played out in Jesus' life. The first part of the pattern is this. For Jesus and for so many other people in Scripture, um, there is often a prophetic promise. It's the first part of the pattern I want to point out to you this morning. A prophetic promise. What I mean by this is that God often encounters people with a word or event that promises future blessing and victory. So God often encounters people. He does it in a bunch of different ways, and it's described in many different ways in the Scripture. But he often encounters people with his word or with an experience they have, a vision or dream or an event that plays out that speaks to some kind of future blessing and victory. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is this kind of event 
Um, the whole event, everything about it, the way Jesus is going into the city is a prophetic promise. The way this is playing out is pointing towards a future blessing and victory. It's why we often refer to this, what we just read in Matthew 21, as a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, even though Jesus is about to experience things that look like defeat, right, from friends and those in power. But we call it a triumphal entry because of the way it plays out. You know, Jesus asks for a colt to ride in to the city on, and apparently, you know, maybe this person had, had knew who Jesus was or knew um, and had some connection to the disciples. But the way Jesus kind of boldly just asked for this, like, give me your stuff, I need it to ride into the city, you know, um, points forward to the fact that Jesus really is king of the whole universe, right? There's a picture in that, that everything belongs to him anyway. And it's his right as king to ask for what he wants and to get it when he needs it, right? Jesus enters into the city humble and meek, but he enters into the city as a king. The crowd would have recognized the symbolism in this, that he's entering the city like a triumphant king. They even cry out to him. They call him the son of David, which is a kingly title. David was an ancient king in Israel's history. So they're recognizing that Jesus is in the line of this ancient king, David. Well, again, the prophetic promise, Jesus enters into the city like a king because he is a king. Um, it might not be fully apparent to, to the eye, you know, at this point when Jesus is riding in, but it is true. He's a king, and this is pointing forward to a future blessing, to a future victory that's going to be fully revealed in time. And Jesus enters into Jerusalem. He enters into the holy city because the prophets say that Jesus will someday rule the world from the new Jerusalem, right? So this is an entry into Jerusalem that is pointing forward to a future reality, right? About Jesus' kingship, about his rulership. So God often works with people in this way, worked with his son in this way. He will give to us a prophetic promise. And when that moment comes, when you experience something that's like a prophetic promise, there's an exhilaration in it, right? Emotionally, it's a high. You know, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but sometimes, you know, you're reading the word of God and a promise of God will just stick out to you. And there's an exhilaration in absorbing that promise for the first time or uh, in a new way, right? There's an exhilaration in understanding that. It may be that someone has come to you and given you a prophetic word. They've prayed over you or said, hey, I think God has put this gifting on your life, has given you this ability in ministry. There's often an exhilaration in that moment. Or you might have stepped into an event, right? And there's just something about the event that you know it's more than just about what's happening today. That the way this event is playing out, it's saying something about why God created you, right? Or why he's called you. I've had moments like that. You know, many years ago now, this church, when I was a teenager in this church, we took our first mission trip to Belglade, Florida, in South Central Florida. And if you come here, you hear us talk about that community a lot. But that whole week for me was this kind of prophetic promise kind of event. You know, we were doing ministry there that pointed to why I was created and why, what God was calling me to. I knew it was more than just about that one week. You may have experienced things like that before. 
when the encounter happens, when God comes to us with some kind of prophetic promise, you know, from his word or through something that someone has prayed or said over our lives or an event that we've experienced, there's often an emotional exhilaration in it in the moment. And you feel that in this passage, just the emotional up that Jesus' triumphal entry is. And many of the other people in Scripture, even in the Old Testament, experience this. You know, think about Abraham being taken out to look at the stars, and he gets this promise that he will have offspring, even though he and Sarah in their old age, he will have offspring, and his offspring will be more than the number of the stars. That's got to be exhilarating to get that promise. Or Moses, when he's at the burning bush, And God says that he's going to use him to deliver his people. Now, I don't know if that was exhilarating for Moses. He seems really scared in the passage if you read it in the Old Testament. But there's something about that that seems like God is on the move, like something's about to happen, that God is about to act. Or this, when an old prophet named Samuel searches out a shepherd boy named David and anoints him as king, even though there's already a king on the throne and And there's no reason that anyone should think that king is going anywhere, right? But this Old Testament prophet comes up to this boy David and anoints him as king. That's got to be exciting to feel. There's often an exhilaration in the encounter, in the word, in the promise that comes to us. But here's the pattern that I want you to see because it was true for Jesus and it's true for us as well. That experience of the prophetic promise is very often followed by what feels like senseless suffering. It's often what, these two are very close together, very many times. For people who know and love God, for people who've been used by God, this is very often a pattern that plays out. God visits, he speaks, he gives a promise. It feels like God's about to do something and then the world falls apart. What is that? Now listen, I know if, if you're a Christian and you know the Bible, I know right away you might say, well, it's not senseless suffering. God's purposes are in it. And so we all know that, but we all know what it feels like to go through suffering that feels like it has no meaning, right? That feels like, why would God come and visit me that way? Why would God come and speak what he spoke to me? And then, and then it seems like everything falls apart. It seems like nothing comes of it. Am I speaking to somebody in here? Have you been through this? It's like, what is that? Right after the exhilarating moment of the prophetic promise, right after all of these events line up in Jesus' entry into Jerusalem that God is putting an exclamation point on his son, on his anointing, on his calling, on his purpose, why is it that then Jesus enters into what is undoubtedly the hardest week of ministry in his whole life? I mean, if you read Matthew 21 to 27 up through the crucifixion. You'll see that he's challenged by religious authorities. They test him. They conspire against him. They're trying to catch him in his words. He's betrayed by his, by his friends, by his disciples. Christine preached on that in the last couple weeks. He agonizes in the garden. I preached on that a few weeks ago. He has to go through two uh, messed up trials you know, in the Sanhedrin, and then he stands Before Pilate, this is complete injustice. Herb preached on that last week, and this all leads up to him being tortured and killed all in one week. Right after the exhilaration of Jesus' triumphal entry, this is what this week looks like. Now, 
this is really the meat of what I want to get at this morning. How did Jesus make it through that week? What was going on inside of his mind and in his heart that allowed him to not only make it through, but to make it through victoriously because he made it through without sin? So what we believe about Jesus, our pain very often leads us to sin. It leads us to anger. It leads us to unbelief. It leads us to bitterness. But none of that took root in Jesus' heart. So how did he make it through that week? Without falling into sin. Well, I want to make a case for you in just the next few minutes, to the best I can, that the promises of God were deep inside of Jesus' mind and in his heart. And there's good evidence for this in Scripture. That God's promises had been drilled down deep inside of him. And in his final week of suffering, the week that we're going to remember this next week as Christians, as Christians all over the world are going to remember it, the way Jesus made it through this week was because the promises of God were deep inside of him. Look all the way back at Matthew 16. It says this about Jesus. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and what? And on the third day, raised to life. See, there's several of these prediction passages where Jesus is predicting his own death. Not only did Jesus know he was going to die, he knew how he was going to die. This had been revealed to him by the Spirit. He knew what was going to happen. He knew who was going to betray him. He actually knew a lot of information, which I think that actually makes facing the pain worse in some ways. Right? Um, I don't know about you, I've appreciated it when the doctor, like, just sticks me without, like, telling me, you know? But sometimes if they build it up too much, you know, it almost makes it worse. Jesus knew a lot of information about what was going to happen to him. He knew he was going to be crucified, but here's what he also knew. That on the third day, he was going to be raised to life. He knew that as a fact. He had told his disciples that this was going to happen. He was going to die, but he was going to be raised to life again. Look, when he enters Jerusalem, the gospel authors quote out of the book of Zechariah, which I am sure Jesus was familiar with, and he knew this passage as he was entering into Jerusalem. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I think Jesus fully understood that when he was entering Jerusalem in this way, he was fulfilling the prophecy that had been spoken about him hundreds of years before by Zechariah. And this meant one thing, that God had promised that he was king. And he was entering into that city where he was going to face all of the hardship and abuse that he was about to in that week. But he entered in knowing that God had made a promise to him that he would be exalted. Look, later on in Matthew chapter 21, remember Jesus clears the temple because uh, of the evil that's happening there. Christine just referenced this. And that passage is so interesting because the religious leaders hate what Jesus is doing. But in, in Matthew 21, right after Jesus clears the temple and seems all angry, you know who comes crowding around him? The sick and the blind. See, as, as angry as Jesus seems to be in that passage, the most vulnerable and the left behind still felt safe with him. They felt like they could come to him still and get for healing. And Jesus reestablished his house as a place where healing could happen. Right? Not where people were taken advantage of. And in that story, children begin to 
shout praises. They begin to say things, and this infuriates the religious leaders, but that passage quotes Psalm 8, from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. Jesus knew this passage. This is a promise that he could stand on. That even when those in power were rejecting him, the fact that children were recognizing his true identity was a sign of the promise that had been given to him about how this story was going to play out. Later on in Matthew 21, Jesus gets into a debate with the religious leaders. They're trying to test him and trap, trap him. And Jesus himself quotes Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus tells the religious leaders, look, this was prophesied about in the Psalms that you would reject me. And guess what? The scripture says that actually this is marvelous. That as painful as this is, actually the marvelous purposes of God are even right in the middle of this, that you're rejecting me that you refuse to recognize my identity. Later on in Matthew 22, Jesus, in another one of these conversations with the religious leaders, quotes out of Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus understood that this was another promise that had been given by God, that even as Jesus faced his enemies, that God had promised that all of his enemies would be put under his feet that he would be victorious. And this psalm was on Jesus' lips. He was able to say it even to those who opposed him. In his final meal with his disciples, we know from the Gospel of John that he began to wash their feet. This is incredible because not only is Jesus not sinning in the hardest part of his life, but he's actually serving the very people who are going to abandon him. It is an extraordinary example of suffering. And This is what it says in John 13, 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. He knew who he was. He knew where he had come from, where he was going. He knew the promises that had been given to him. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. That's how he was able to do it. And then... In Jesus' final moments on the cross, he yells out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually quoting a psalm. It's Psalm 22.1. Now, in his weakness, that's all he gets out is Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But do you know what the rest of that psalm says? It says, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises, and you, our ancestors, put their trust, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. This is Jesus' lowest moment, but I think even here he knew the promises of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet you are enthroned. Yet our ancestors cried out to you and you delivered them. And then after Jesus' resurrection and he goes back to heaven and the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church, Peter, filled with new power, begins to preach to the crowd, and he quotes this psalm in Acts 2. He quotes Psalm 16, and I'm sure Jesus knew this passage as well. I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. 
You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life and filled me with joy in your presence. Scripture doesn't give us this much detail, but I just imagine Jesus praying this psalm. Even in the week as he headed toward the cross, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. See, the secret to Jesus' success in suffering was this, that he never suffered without the promises of God. Now, here's what I want to tell you this morning. Our master suffered, we will suffer too. No servants above their master. Very often, things you know, happen in our lives and we think, oh, do I deserve this? Right? Actually, we're the only ones who ever deserve that stuff. Jesus is who never deserved it. But he went through all of it. So if he, greater than us, deserved, uh, did not deserve it, and went through that suffering, how much more are we going to experience suffering in this life? It's going to happen. But here's the good news I have to tell you this morning. Jesus never suffered without God's promises, and we don't ever have to suffer without God's promises. We may have to suffer, but we never have to suffer without his promises. He has always given his promises to us. So where do we find his promises? Well, we cling to the word of God. I encourage you, as you read your Bibles, and and listen, we, we, we better be reading our Bibles because this gets challenged all the time in our minds. I find... When the, the more time I spend away from the word of God, the easier it is for my mind to slip in the face of suffering. But I encourage you, when you read your Bibles, just underline the promises of God. Do you know how many promises have been given to us? Hundreds of promises that God has backed by his own character. I was just claiming a promise for myself and for some people I was praying for this week. Once I was young, now I am old. I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. That's a promise that you can stand on. I have never seen the righteous forsaken. It says right before that, the righteous may stumble, but they never fall. That's a promise that I can say over my life and the life of my kids and the life of you all. It's my church. That's a promise. Or, and I know this is more subjective, but sometimes... Some of you have had this experience. Someone comes and prays something over you, says something over you, and you have a sense that this is a prophetic word. It's in line with Scripture. You know, we're supposed to test these things. But it's in line with Scripture, and you just have a sense. The Holy Spirit said that to me through this person. The Holy Spirit gave me a promise. You know, in my phone, this is very private. I keep it between me and and God. But I record all of those things. They have been spoken and said over me. I write them down. Sometimes I pull them out and I pray them back to God. God, I think you said this to me. So I'm going to pray it again. I had, a, I had a dream. At the very beginning of our time in Aliquippa, I had a dream. I've had very few spiritually significant dreams. But I had this dream where a young man that we were ministering to in the community, deep in the streets, uh, is weeping in repentance. That was all the dream was. He's on his knees. He's weeping in repentance. I don't know what that young man is up to now. We're not even super close. But I woke up from that dream early in the morning just feeling like God had given me a picture of his salvation. I have that in my phone. And sometimes I will still take it to the Lord and say, Lord, I think you said this. And it's not playing out that way right now, but I think you said this. And so I'm going to bring it to you again in prayer. One time, 
when I was feeling hopeless, because you know, guys, in these times of senseless suffering, hopelessness does settle in. There's the pain itself, but then it gets worse when you sense that the other people around you aren't believing God's promises too. And then, if you read the Psalms, you'll find tons of examples of this, where the people who wrote the Psalms are aware that the people around them are laughing at them because they're still believing in God's promises and this pattern and this part of senseless suffering. And then it's even more painful when word reaches you behind your back that someone thinks you're crazy because you're still believing this promise that God has given you. Well, then your heart really fails, you know, within you. That happens. But one time in a moment of despair, I just had this picture in my mind of rapids. And they were rushing and rushing and rushing. And it just felt like all of this hopelessness that I was feeling was like those rapids. And I don't know if you've ever seen rapids, but sometimes there's these giant rocks that just stick out in the middle of them. And I felt like God was saying, my promises are like that rock. Just cling to it. Just hold it. When you don't know what else to do, when everything around you looks like senseless suffering, but you know that you've been given a prophetic promise, just cling onto the rock. This morning, as I was walking the sanctuary praying, I was just asking that the Holy Spirit would put new strength in our hands to cling onto that rock and to not let it go, to hold on to the promises of God in his word, to hold on to the promises of God that has been, that have been spoken to us, that's been given to us, and to not let it go no matter what. This season of senseless suffering, it happened to the heroes of Scripture. You know, Abraham, it's a long time before Isaac is born. And he, and he tries to take things into his own hand. And the promise begins to seem laughable at some point that God is going to do this. Or, you know, Moses ends up in the wilderness with a bunch of needy, disobedient, complaining Israelites. And it seems like everything that God did is going to fall apart. Or David gets anointed as king, and then he starts running from, for his life from the current king. And that period of his life lasts for a long time. But I'm telling you, friends, if like Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, if we can hold on to the promises, just with a tenacity that says, I'm not letting go. Don't let the enemy come and tell you that the Lord didn't say it. He said, no, I know what the Lord said. I know the promise that was given to me in his word. I'll read it a hundred times if I have to. I know what was spoken to me. I'm holding on to that promise. You will move from prophetic promise through senseless suffering to vindicated victory. I felt like alliteration this week. (laughs) Vindicated victory. And of course, see, we know that this is the end of the story for Jesus. Went through this terrible week, but friends, death could not keep its hold on him. That's where it ended. And guess what? Jesus never suffered even one moment without knowing that there wasn't going to be resurrection. He knew that there was going to be resurrection. And friends, very literally, that's how we get to suffer too. Whatever you've gone through, whatever pain you've experienced, relational pain, physical pain, whatever, you don't have to go through that without knowing that very literally, God's going to raise your body from the dead if you are in Christ. And he will make all things right. That's his promise. Jesus suffered with resurrection in view. We suffer with resurrection in view too. I'm a little over, but I got a story from Nepal I got to share with you. Can I share with you a story and then I'll let you go. 
I experienced all three of these phases, prophetic promise, sense of suffering, and vindicated victory in a very short amount of time. Sometimes this pattern can last years. Some of you are in the middle of that senseless suffering part. It's been years. Um, but I experienced all three in just a two-day time span. Um, at one point, as we're ministering to the pastors in Nepal, we invite the Holy Spirit to come into the room, if the worship team could come up. We invite the Holy Spirit to come and to uh, begin to minister to people, and God's power fell in a demonstrative way in the room. And as this ministry is happening, and we're praying over these pastors, and there's pain coming out of them, and God is filling them with His Spirit, and all this amazing stuff is happening, um, something disturbing started to happen on the other side of the room. I don't have too much time to qualify this story this morning, so I hope you understand. Everywhere Jesus went, um, evil, wicked spirits manifested. It's a normal part of his ministry, and he dealt with that authoritatively. And I know in the culture we come from, it's easy to just call that superstitious or to be unsure about it. But friends, it's real. It's real. And this is one of those stories. And so this young woman, 21 years old, uh, begins to manifest an evil spirit. She came with the leaders of her church. And best that we understood, her uncle had been involved in black magic, once again, not superstitious, dangerous, and had been involved in that. He died, and then I don't pretend to understand it, but whatever he was messing with came and visited his niece. And uh, it was bad, friends. Um, as bad as anything that you'll read in the New Testament. Um, and I hate it when the enemy, it's not the first time I've been in that kind of situation. I hate it when the enemy does that to someone because he's trying to create confusion and chaos in this beautiful moment when the Holy Spirit's working in people. And he's trying to humiliate the person that he's messing with, right? And so Steve and some women from the church uh, took uh, her out. It was disruptive, so I had to take her out of the service. I joined them a little bit later. And friends, I have faced some strong evil spirits, um, but never one this strong and disobedient. And uh, it was mocking us. I'll be honest with you, I, I don't know. We were full of faith. I don't know if Steve's faith ever uh, slipped, but mine, mine slipped for a moment because it wasn't this girl. Our enemy's not against flesh and blood, right? It wasn't this girl. It was the spirit at work in her. But... Uh, at one point, she points at me and starts laughing, and I heard an accusation in my head. And I just had to step away for a moment and center myself again on God's promises because the Spirit was telling us it wasn't going to leave her alone. And she was being tortured. Well, this went on and on and on, and we're giving the command for it to leave and leave and leave, and nothing's happening. And eventually she comes back to a little bit and she was just tired and frustrated and quite frankly, she wanted the ministry time to end. And so we ended it. You respect the person. And we ended it. But we left that night just thinking, what happened? What happened? We were full of faith for that. Now, if this story sounds weird to you, there are stories like this in the New Testament, right? There's a story where the disciples couldn't do it. And Jesus tells them that sometimes you just gotta go back to prayer and fasting right? And Steve and I, we trusted God through it all, but we're just thinking, Lord, why would you abandon her to her suffering? Why are you letting her go back to that place? We want to see her free from this. But friends, that night, I read a psalm that I'm about to pronounce over all of you as we close out of Psalm 20. I, I read this. 
Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. That's a promise. Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. And that morning we spent time in prayer. We shed tears. And the next morning we said, maybe God will give us another chance. Sure enough, Steve kicks off the morning time. Worship is high. God's presence comes low to meet us. And the same thing, this chaos is happening in this young girl again. And so we take her out of the room with some women in the church. And, but, but it was like overnight, God had just put a new level of faith in us. It was like overnight, there was just a new level of his promises in us. See, sometimes I think that's how God redeems the times of senseless suffering. Is something new rises in us in faith that we couldn't have had unless we had gone through the suffering, unless it seemed like the promises weren't working, right? But then God forges something new and deep into us. And so this time, we just felt like, you know what? It doesn't matter what this evil spirit does or how it manifests. And friends, it was ugly. I'm talking shrieks, screaming, blasphemies, laughing at us, cursing the name of Christ. And it wasn't this, it wasn't this poor young woman. It was what was at work in her, you know, trying to humiliate her. It wasn't even her fault. And, and this time, when she would come to, uh, she would break out in tears and she would say, Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me, Jesus, deliver me, deliver me. And then she'd be back in it again, crying out to Jesus for help. And I just said, you know what? We're going to stay calm because there's a holy swagger when you got the promises. You know what I mean? It's not trust in yourself. It, we, this, we had a translator and, the, and she's saying all this stuff to us. And at one point, the spirit says to us through her, says, who are you? And well, who do you think you are? that you're going to be able to do this. And I just said, no, 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 no. I said, the one who sits in heaven laughs. That's a promise from scripture. And I said, and we're not coming in our own authority. We're coming in the name of Jesus and you must go. And friends, three different distinct times, spirits left her and she was free. She was a different person on the other side of that. Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed, but it's the promises that get forged in us. It's interesting, I'm sure Jesus could have done it just that first time, but I think he built a new level of faith into all of us, you know, as we pressed into the promises. If you'd stand to your feet. I wanna say this over you as a blessing. If you want to, can you just hold out your hands as I speak this to you? If you could look at me. I want us to make eye contact as I say this to you. And then I think, let's sing this Hosanna song one last time. I know we're over. Oh, I just don't want to miss a moment. All right? I would just want to speak this over you. That night, I started memorizing Psalm 20. And I said, I want to come home and pronounce this over the congregation. So this is God's promise to you. May the Lord, may the Lord, Yahweh, may the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desires of your heart and make all your plans succeed. May we shout for joy over your victory. 
and lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers them from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down, but we rise up and stand firm. May the Lord give victory to the king and answer us when we call. I love that prayer. May the Lord give victory to the king because every time he gives you victory, he's really giving victory to the king. He's giving victory to the king that rode in on Jerusalem. May the Lord give you victory. Let's sing. May our king be lifted up. Let's praise him. We love you, Jesus.